Good evening. So we've had enough time, enough hours have rolled by that um, begin to watch more closely this, what I think of as kind of forgetting and then remembering. You can just, because our intention here is somewhat to notice what's happening, it gets clearer and clearer that we go under for swaths of time. You know, we get lost, we go into our thinking trance and it's just the way it is. We leave home. And when that's happening, sometimes the thoughts are pleasant or drifty and it's not um, obvious suffering. And at other times, we get it that our thoughts are creating a reality that it just is confining, that we've become smaller. And because the mind's bias is to fixate on what's wrong, that tends to happen more or less. Of course, um, it's our evolutionary tendency, and some minds do it more than others. And one of my favorite little cartoons that captures this is of two women sitting on a park bench, and one of them says, Oi. And the other one says, Oi. Then the first one says, okay, enough about the children, you know, and they go on to to whatever. But the um, teaching is that whenever we're off in our thoughts and there's not any remembrance and we're we're living inside these stories, uh, the Buddha described it as a dream, sometimes we call it a trance, but the central feature is that our sense of identity shrinks. When we're off in thoughts, we're subscribing to a story of a self that's in here and a world out there, and there's generally a timeline of we're here and we're trying to get somewhere, and there's things to do, and there's consequences, and we're just living in this small identity that's generally either deflated, like that there's something missing and wrong, or sometimes it's inflated. I'm kind of special and important and better than. But as we know, underneath even that, there's insecurity. We wouldn't be having to hold on to this special self unless there was insecurity. One of the main features of the trance is, and we know this, is that we get very fixated on what other people think of us and we're constantly trying to come to terms with what we think of ourselves. And this isn't just our individual, it's our collective trance too. Um, As a little way of plugging into the world out there, I thought maybe to share with you Uh, We heard a little bit about uh, the correspondence dinner that Obama just attended. So I thought I'd share with you a little bit of what our president spoke of. He said, it's been quite a year since I last spoke here. Lots of ups and downs, except approval ratings, which have just gone down. But that's politics. It doesn't matter to me. Besides, I happen to know that my approval ratings are still very high in the country of my birth. (laughs) I thought it was a good line, actually. (laughs) So in the Buddhist tradition and in Western psychology and in most wisdom traditions, we know that when our identity has shrunk, we get very preoccupied with, are we good enough? Are we okay? And in the moments 
that we're judging ourselves, in the moments that we're in some way divided, we are forgetting really the fullness of what we are. And the Buddha, in a way, his description of suffering is forgetting who we are. I shared in the closing circle that um, few months after my son was born, this Narayan who's now 24, so this is, you know, 24 years ago or so, um, I read somewhere, and I, and I don't know if this is truth or folklore or what, but I read somewhere about Bantu tribesmen and their ritual with their children. And the ritual is when the children go to sleep, the, the father goes around and whispers into the ear of each child uh, just a simple line of, may you be who you are. May you be who you are. And there was something about that that really touched me. Like, is there a more precious blessing than just be who you are? Because it has to do with really realizing who you are and, and embodying that, that, that fullness. So I, I did that with my son. I, when he was asleep, I'd sometimes just look at him and sense who he was and just, you know, be who you are. And um, I confess to the closing group, I'll confess to you, that there were also many, many moments that my communication was, be who I want you to be, <laughs> you know, and be different. So um, those messages are kind of dueling probably in his consciousness. But what a, a, a thing to offer to our own inner life and to others to really truly be who you are. So... Tonight, what I'd like to explore is the challenge to that, and the challenge being that each one of us, through our families and our culture and our most basic conditioning, um, rather than realizing and embodying our fullness, we are often at odds with ourselves. We are often cruel to ourselves. We're often locked in some way at war with ourselves. So how to, to recognize that and, and then the freedom and, and Larry spoke so beautifully of what we call sometimes the two wings of, of mindfulness, of recognizing how that is. Just recognizing how we are in relationship with our lives and bringing in a quality of kindness which is intrinsic to awareness, not separate from awareness. It often needs to be cultivated but it's intrinsic to awareness. So we'll be exploring really how to bring these wings of awareness to what I often describe as the trance of unworthiness or this kind of core suffering where we're just not on our own team. There's not a quality of tenderness towards the life that's right here. About eight years ago there was a... the Washington Post had a t-shirt award kind of thing and one of the winning t-shirts said I suffer occasional delusions of adequacy (laughs) you know sometimes I think of it that when there's any sense of self along with the sense of self is a reaction to the self some reaction some evaluation, some judgment some stance in relationship with So it's really how to be in wise relationship with this life. 
Now there's a Zen Sutta that's very, very well known. You'll be familiar with some parts of it. It's called The Mind of Absolute Trust. So part of this is an inquiry of, you know, what if we had absolute trust? And I'd like to ask you, when you hear that, what is it that you imagine we're trying to trust in? And there's no wrong answer, so don't be shy, but what are we trying to trust in? Anyone? Ourselves. Ourselves. The mystery. Any other expressions? Belonging, trust in our belonging. Anything else? Science. Science. Our Our bodies. What do you want to trust in? I'm sorry? Others, okay. I was going to say, it doesn't need an Mm, just trust. Trust. Okay, so whether we consider trust without an object or that if we really, if the object's something we really trust, it's no longer an object, it's just a subjective experience. Um, what each of each strand that you expressed is part of uh, the way I describe it also. Um, it's really trust in what we are or who we are or reality and knowing that we're one with that. I mean, there's a, a line that I've always loved that if you trust you're the ocean, you're not afraid of the waves. So you're just trusting in beingness, in this, this ultimate belonging, as Mark said. You know, just trusting in that oneness and so that the waves and all the different waves appear that that create different bodies and different perspectives and different birds and flowers and frogs and every all the moods all the weather systems like what's happening tonight and in some way that belongs to that oneness there's trust in that and what that leads to and here's the part of this sutta you'll know about is the line that really to be at one with all things is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. Isn't that an amazing line? To be without anxiety about non-perfection. That if we really realize and trust who we are, trust this essence, this awareness that's here, Trust who's looking through these eyes right now and who's listening. Trust the the purity, essential purity of heart, you know, when we're not afraid and clenched. We really trust. Then there's not anxiety about non-perfection. What is non-perfection? It's just the conditioned reactivity that it's not our fault, it's just what's playing through. So let's look a bit at how we lock into mistrust or lock into a something's wrong kind of feeling. How we experience our conditioned reactivity, and we all have it, but instead of seeing it as waves playing out, we take it quite personally and think it's wrong. Okay, let's take a look at that. And the first step is kind of the real big, big existential look, which is that 
if there's any perception of separation, which is what, it's the nature of all organisms, to have a sense of a self in here and a world out there, if there's any sense of that, there is some anxiety and tension, some inclination to react and grab after what will make us safe, what will give pleasure, and push away anything that feels endangering. So it's a setup. These body minds are set up to do that. And it's interesting, I sometimes think about this, that if our earliest mammalian ancestors, just imagine what would have happened if they would lie out in a field and bask in the sun or do slow walking meditation. You know, the mammoth would go crunch, you know. Or, you know, recite mantras or do a little qigong or, you know, you couldn't make it, right? Like, through all of our history, up until this last little sliver of it, doing what we were doing is a setup to be creamed. We, we wouldn't have survived. So we have it in our survival brains that when we say, okay, sit very still, just open to what's here, move slowly, don't plan ahead, that all goes very counter to what makes for, uh, you know, handing down your genes to the next, Right? So what happens is that uh, we have all this conditioning towards fight or flight. And then not only that, we take it personally and blame ourselves for our conditioning. That's our particular, I think it's our particular human achievement. Not only are we conditioned, but we add blame. Now, there's a woman, uh, you know, and I just want to say that we do it in ways that if we watched each other do it, we'd go, oh dear, please, don't. I can say for myself, in the last month, I've been with three women, young women, uh, who have breast cancer, and each one of them felt a tremendous amount of shame and self-blame about their cancer. And it breaks me up just to think of it right now, that here's you know, one, a mother of a under two-year-old, some place in her psyche is going, it's my fault, what did I do to bring this on? What's wrong with me? Now, isn't that almost like the definition of tragedy? That there would be a painful experience and then we'd add on, I'm bad. I was up in New York um, teaching in Manhattan the weekend before last, and one of the men attending was an elderly physician who's no longer in practice and um, going through a tremendous amount of uh, memory loss and a lot of difficulty in, in functioning. And he took me aside and said his biggest challenge is not to feel a, a sense of self-loathing. And here he is, having to let go of so much and add on. So, Elaine Pagels... Uh, did a brilliant study of the Christian notion of original sin. And she wrote this, she said, there is a human tendency to accept personal blame for suffering. People often would rather feel guilty than helpless. Now that really rung true, we'd rather feel guilty than helpless. This is one of the ways you can interpret the Buddha's uh, teaching on the second arrow, that something happens and it's painful, it's suffering. Either we get addicted or we get cancer, something happens. And then we add the second arrow 
of self-blame because we'd rather feel responsible because it gives us some sense of power that we can do something than that helplessness. It's what I call a false refuge, the self-blame. Very, very deep in our psyche. The sense that if we blame ourselves then maybe we can control things and make them different. So there's a chain reaction. It's called papancha, the Pali word, a proliferation that when we start looking closely at, we can see. And it begins with this existential sense of unease, and then out of that we have our fight-flight stuff go on. And then the fight-flight's exacerbated in our families of origin and our culture to the extent we have unmet needs, most of us, right? How many of us really felt seen and understood? How many of us felt that kind of love that really allowed us to be who we are? So we have unmet needs. And then what happens is our fight-flight gets amped up. Okay? That makes sense so far? That this is the amping up. And then we do the second arrow and we hate ourselves for our ways of fighting and fighting. We hate ourselves for our false refuges. So just when we take a look at the false refuges, we do this, I often when I'm speaking do this because we take them so personally and yet every one of us has strategies to feel more safe, to feel more of a sense of belonging, to make up for that unease and sometimes it's this kind of obsessive thinking I mean, how many of you have found yourself with obsessive thinking and then added the second arrow and judged yourself for your thoughts? You don't have to raise your hands. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the over-consuming. Again, it's a very, uh, the earliest learned mechanism to soothe ourselves. We're feeling that uneasiness and um, then we over-consume and then we don't like ourselves for it. And it comes in all different forms. This is Rita Rudner. She says, I love to shop after a bad relationship. I don't know. I buy a new outfit and it makes me feel better. It just does. Sometimes, if I see a really great outfit, I'll break up with someone just on purpose. You know? <laughs> then another one of the refuges that we take when, we're, when there's that underlying insecurity, we've, there's that basic insecurity, is that we... Um, develop a persona that kind of presents us in certain ways. Just watch when you're back in relating. Oh, you don't even have to wait till you're back in the world. Just watch your mind when you're doing walking meditation sometimes. Have you ever noticed that you're doing walking meditation, you're feeling and being... And there's a part of you that's watching you do walking meditation from the viewpoint of others? Have you ever... Well, I noticed that that happens to me, so I'll just say that. We want to look like a good yogi, you know. And in the world, we want to present the person that will be loved or respected or approved. And sometimes, because of that, we shape what we present in a way that can be misleading. We cover over things. Now here's a story that uh, has to do with this uh, guy's driving around the backwoods of Montana and he sees a sign in the front of a broken down shanty style house talking dog for sale 
He rings the bell and the owner appears and tells him the dog's in the backyard. The guy goes into the backyard and sees a nice-looking lab retriever sitting there. You talk, he asks. Yep, the lab replies. <laughs> After the guy recovers from the shock of hearing a dog talk, he says, So, what's your story? Lab looks up and says, Well, I discovered I could talk when I was pretty young. I wanted to help the government, so I told the CIA. In no time at all, they had me jetting from country to country, sitting in rooms with spies and world leaders, because no one figured a dog would be eavesdropping. I was one of their most valuable spies for eight years running. But jetting around really tired me out, and I knew I wasn't getting any younger, so I decided to settle down. I signed up for a job at the airport to do some undercover security, you know, wandering near suspicious characters and listening in. I uncovered some incredible dealings, and I was awarded a batch of medals. I got married, had a mess of puppies. Now I'm just retired. Guy's amazed. He goes back in and asks the owner what he wants for the dog. Ten dollars, the guy says. Ten dollars? This dog's amazing. Why on earth are you selling him so cheap? Because he's a liar. He never did any of that shit. (laughs) So we present ourselves. So in a way, I run through these false refuges, you know, whether it's our refuge of being speedy or trying to accomplish or distract or... Um, blaming others, that's a really big one, because these are our ways of running away. These are expressions of not trusting who's here. These are expressions of our anxiety about non-perfection. There's a sense of something's wrong, so we have to cover up, so we have to present something. And, as I mentioned, the most, perhaps, uh, toxic and deep is this very uh, this reflex to see our false refuges we sense that we're leaving we sense that we're acting out we sense what we call the selfing and then we add that second arrow of either self-loathing or just the critique but in some way at odds and the truth is in any moment that you're at odds with yourself and judging yourself, in those moments you can't see who's here. You cannot realize and entrust and embody the presence that's here. You're divided from yourself. It's like I, some years back, uh, teaching at IMS, and one woman described her mother as she was dying, going in and out of a coma. And at one point she kind of woke up and really lucid, looked this woman in the eyes and said, you know, all my life I believed something was wrong with me. Then she went back into a coma and she died soon after. And that was her gift in a way because it was so poignant that her mother's life had been in this trance of something's wrong with me, that something in her knew that that awareness would help her not believe in the same way. So our challenge and really our commitment to freedom is often a very immediate commitment to 
recognizing how in some way we're caught in this trance of something's wrong. And sometimes it's very, very light. Sometimes it's just we're living inside an idea of a self and we're just not at ease and we're just not resting in our fullness. And we have to be suffering a little because whenever we're not connected to truth, we're suffering. So if we're not realizing the truth of this mystery and vastness that is really our essence, there's some tension. But often it's more than that. Often there's a real suffering, as in those women I described, of taking it personally, the inevitable stuff that happens in this life. So the rest of this talk will be really about how we can bring this practice to that trance. And I'd like to base it a bit on a a few lines from one of the teachers that's most influenced me, uh, Sridhar Sargadatta, no longer alive, amazing teacher. He wrote, I am that. So if you're looking for a amazing Dharma book. Okay, so this is what he says. All you need is already within you, only you must approach yourself with reverence and love. Self-condemnation and self-distrust are grievous errors. Your constant flight from pain and search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself. All I plead with you is this. Make love of yourself perfect. Deny yourself nothing. Give yourself infinity and eternity and discover that you do not need them. You are beyond. All I plead with you is this. Make love of yourself perfect. So let's, um, first of all, explore what that means. Uh, I mean, the first thing that he's teaching, which is your constant flight from pain and search for pleasure, is a sign of love you bear for yourself. These are the false refuges. It's not our fault. We were doing the best we could when we developed these habits of leaving what was too much to tolerate, to be with. Every one of us, to the extent that we had to leave, was just trying to find the best way we could to manage. So the first piece of this is not to add the second arrow to the ways we run away. It's a very... uh, It's very forgiving, and that's very, very essential. There is no way to come to realize who we are if we don't forgive the conditioning to take false refuge. So that's the first piece. So then the question is, what does he mean by love? Make love of yourself perfect. And um, the best description I know of love is this deep attentiveness, that if we're paying deep attention, love arises. Krishnamurti says, take a stone, any garden variety stone, put it in your living room. And every day when you pass by the stone, just once a day, take a a minute or two to kind of just pay attention to the stone. 
and within two months it will become a sacred stone. Our attention wakes up love. Now why is it that you see everybody's devoted to their particular dog or cat and you look at them and you go, hey, that's a really cool cat or that, what an adorable dog, but you're not quite as in love with that dog as they are? You know, it's because they've been paying attention. Attention wakes up our love. So it's attention and it's an attention that initially when we pay attention it might not feel like it's filled with kindness. Sometimes when you read like the Platform Sutra that says, my teaching is that there is no difference between awareness and kindness. And we might think, well, mm, I've been aware in moments but not felt kind. Do you know what I mean? Like that, you can sense that you're, there's, there's some mindfulness. But mindfulness or awareness gets deeper and fuller and deeper and fuller. And when there is a fullness of presence, where there's total acceptance of what is, like really absolute openness to what is, a full and open presence, there is a natural response of tenderness. If you bring anyone to mind and you even fantasize what it would be like to truly accept that being, you will find with that accepting presence, love. So when he says, make love of yourself perfect, he's talking about this attentiveness that as it gets deeper and fuller becomes naturally infused with tenderness. Now what does he mean by self? I mean, if you're a good Buddhist here, you were wondering about that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like make love of yourself. Like who's the self we're loving, right? So um, my understanding when we're making love of ourself perfect. By the way, I was kidding about that good Buddhist line. <laughs> Don't do um, When we're making love of ourself perfect, we're making love of the life that's right here perfect. Just this aliveness. And what we find, you know, sometimes they say Buddha, Buddhism is an inside job that we're, you know, working... What we find, and Larry said, articulated this really powerfully, is that as we make love of this life perfect, there's no boundary to where this life is. We're just, we fall in love with life. But we start with the particulars of the life that's right here. Does that make sense? Okay. Now let's get to the word perfect, because that can be problematic. my understanding is by perfect it's a kind of an unconditional experience that no matter what wave arises there's a commitment to say this too it has to do with our sincerity of intention that if you leave this evening or this retreat more aware that your freedom comes from truly truly loving the life that's here, then your dedication gets stronger. Because you get it, that there's really no way around it. That in any moment of holding back, we can't actually see who's here and live from our fullness. We can't really be who we are. So the reason I like this set of teachings here is because it's, um, it's almost uncompromising, like not willing to settle for 
um, for some holding back on ourselves in any way, not to really commit to seeing any way we divide ourselves from ourselves. So the beginning, as I mentioned, is to recognize that uh, we take false refuge, every one of us, and to forgive it, to forgive it. And then the second part is to begin to practice with what comes up. And for many of us what comes up is uh, fear or anxiety or anger, any of the weather systems. And then we begin to say, okay, so how do I make love of this life, this self perfect in this moment? And I'll give you a, um, again, the two wings. It's always going to involve contacting or sensing what's going on, direct, in the body, awake sensing, and some intention towards kindness. I got a great question in one group today when I was describing this attitude of friendliness. So what if the friendliness isn't there? I mean, where does it come from? And it's true that when you're in a state of anger or self-loathing, the biology is not friendly. It's like, where does it come from? How do you relate with kindness if you're in a biology of aggression? And this is where intention is all that matters. You know, even when we don't care about ourselves or others, we care about caring. It matters. So it's that intention, that intention to be kind. So I'll give you an example, but uh, first I want to read you from uh, Trungpa because our tendency when we hit a snag, rather than making love of ourself perfect, is to try to get rid of the uncomfortable feeling, figure it out, and get into a different state of mind. In other words, that idea of the only way through is through. It's a belated recognition after we've tried everything else. Everything else. So here's Trungpa. He says, As long as we're trying to figure out how we can escape from our present situation, we can't notice much about it. Only when we feel that this is it, this is how it is right now, without any clutching towards something different, will our intelligence really come alive. As soon as we've realized the resistance, which is the seeking a way out, we become softer, fuller, more tender and awake. Rather than a small, fearful self, there is a freedom of opening unconditionally to life as it is and becoming that openness. So this is the wing of mindful presence, of understanding. And I I think that's an important quote because even when we are saying, okay, I'll be with this pain or this fear, there's usually a part of us that is being with it so it'll go away. Do you know that one? I'll be with this so it'll finally change. So you can't get rid of that conditioning to want it to go away. That's okay. But notice it notice that you're in some way wanting it different. Just the noticing, the awareness itself begins to enlarge your sense of being. Okay, so the two wings. And I'll give you a, a story that was recent, uh, recent that I encountered. A woman uh, 
when I was teaching up at Kripalu. Um, and she had lost her job and she was talking about it and it was amazing to look at the group because I could see how many people were in some way, if it wasn't them, it was somebody close to them, really that their lives, the, just the earth was shaken underneath them uh, with this economy. And so she had climbed the ladder and 28 years in some corporate environment and lost her job she had grown up in an environment where her father's message was really unless you get all A's, something's wrong with you. So she really had that perfection thing. Deep feeling of unlove. And uh, so she, was, she came to this, this weekend and she was railing at the economy and at the corporations, but mostly she was stripped of her sense of okayness. And when I talked about the power and beauty of coming into presence, she'd say, why would I want to be present right now? Being present means feeling like I hate myself. It means feeling scared. It feels meaning, it's ashamed. Why would I want to do that? That was her opening gambit. (laughs) And a lot of the group was sitting there going, yeah, why, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So we did a um, process, which is um, a kind of meditation in action that I'll describe to you because it really showed how she, how these two wings work where she would, um, she got into, in touch with her feeling of self-loathing and I had everybody have their bodies express it and hers was like completely like, you know, huddled over and like this and um, feel the expression on her face of it and, and get in touch with, well, what are you believing in these moments? And she was believing as she had always been a failure but it, it had been covered up by her apparent success but now, now the truth was revealed. Okay, she had been a failure, and so, um, and then to get in touch with how does that feel? You know, all the questions we ask that really have to do with what is this experience like in this moment? How does it feel? Where is it in your body? So she really got in touch with it, and it was a feeling of grief for losing her tribe. Twenty-eight years—that's part. That was her tribe. And then the question I ask a lot, which what does this part most need from you or how does it want you to be with it? What is this part wanting? So she got in touch with all of that and then she stepped out of that body posture, stepped out as if you might remember the sound and the space around you and just enlarge your perspective for a moment. But she physically stepped out. A partner stepped in got into that posture. So she got to kind of bear witness, okay? Still feeling the feelings, but watching it from a little bit of a larger space. And really looking at, well, what does that part need from me? And in this particular exercise, I had her offer to that part of herself what was needed. This is the second wing. This is the wing of heart. What that part needed was, you're okay. It's like trusting this basic okayness, trusting who's really there, the one who's really there. You're really okay. And um, she also used a phrase that I sometimes share. I, I read about this Hawaiian healer who said whenever he is at war with himself or he sees someone else suffering, he sends the message, I'm sorry and I love you. And I'm sorry, it's just that I care. 
and I love you. So she offered that message physically and with touch and with words to that part of herself that her partner was, was being. And then they reversed, so she got her partner then offered it to her. So she got to experience both offering love and receiving it. And then she sat. And this is where we are. We're sitting. We sometimes go inside the feeling. Sometimes we offer care to ourselves. She sat. And what she started discovering was that there were currents of the feelings of the fear and the shame, but that the sense of what she was was resting in this very open space of compassion. By making love of herself perfect for those moments, being with the feeling, seeing what was happening, offering care, in those moments there is a shift in identity. That's the crux and the promise of the teachings. That when we have the blessing to arrive, because I think there's a blessing to it, to, to remember to just stay, to not pedal away, not fix, not figure, to really just stay and just feel what's here, will gradually sense in that presence the what's needed and the quality of heart. And even if it's just a gesture, as I sometimes say, putting your hand on your heart, deep down we really do care. And the gesture activates the caring. Do you understand? Does that make sense? One poet writes about meeting all the untended wounds in her being and lifting them one by one and with each one bringing the wound close to her heart and saying, holy, holy, holy. So this is just a a kind of an example of how these two wings uh, work. The times in our life when... uh, we feel things are most stripped away when there's the most loss of the times and when our whole identity is rattled that it can be most powerful to stay. It's when we're most inclined to leave. One poet describes this as desert time when this stripping away has happened. And uh, a friend in the Sangha, Ayesha Ali, has written about desert time. She... She does it so beautifully. She describes as a woman who's aging what it's like to confront uh, the notions of her past and being past her prime, perhaps. And, And this is, you know, I speak to us all because whether we're losing a sense of our own health or a sense of our youth, our, our partner, perhaps you losing our mental facilities, whatever it is, that's desert time. That's when our whole sense of identity gets shaken up. And then the question is, how do we bring attention in those moments? Let me read you a little what Ayesha writes. She says, Like many women my age, this is a time of pain and opportunity. Will I mourn the loss of the bloom? or appreciate this desert for its own sake. Like age, the desert can destroy 
or by its fierce winds uncover beauty unknown. This desert is harsh and stark in its exposure of what is. Life and age strip away delusion. I'm confronted with the truth of impermanence and the inevitable sadness that accompanies inevitable loss. Yet the desert has its own beauty. I find myself examining my tears and I'm surprised that sometimes I find sustenance in their wetness. Love blooms even in this arid place. I'm becoming stronger here. So this blessing, be who you are, becomes possible in the moments of desert time or any time when we sense the trance, we sense that we're holding on or we're threatened. And instead of leaving, we bring ourselves to what's happening. Now sometimes it's too hard to hold ourselves in what's happening. And I want to name that out loud because um, we sometimes it's almost going to be a machismo thing of, okay, this is the heavy storms and I'm going to like hang in there and tough it out and hold myself. And, and we can't. We just can't. And so part of wisdom and compassion is knowing that we can begin to sense what's happening and find ways to call on love that we're not feeling immediate access to. One man uh, I was working with had been abused by a very borderline alcoholic mother and, and then he abused himself. He just took on the mantle and you know, went on with the self-abuse, several decades of addiction, self-loathing, sabotaging his uh, academic career and destructive relationships. And finally he, he got into a very stable relationship uh, with a carpenter who was, in, in contrast to his headiness, really earthy and wonderful. And uh, another man, two men. And um, he described how he could not feel compassion towards himself, but when he looked through his partner's eyes, he felt like he was looking through the Buddha's eyes at himself. He couldn't see himself any goodness. He could not see that oceanness, that beingness. He looked through his partner's eyes, and he said, "That's when." his whole heart was forgiving and, and deeply honoring of his being. He'd said this to me, he said, Tara, when I look through his eyes, it's like I'm the whole web of life saying, you belong, you belong, you belong. So this is his way of making love of himself perfect. And it's really, really intuitive to, to look through another's eyes until he could start trusting again. And with that trust, the anxiety starts receding. If we know our belonging, we're not so afraid of the waves. So I'd like to say that this pathway we're talking about, whether we call on another's love or our own love, leads to this shift in identity that the Buddha described as freedom. And there's three ways that I, three gifts that I sense that it, uh, it gives to us that I want to name as part of closing right now. Um, one is the gift of aliveness. 
to be divided from ourselves, to be down on ourselves is exhausting. It takes work. And so there's something about when we start feeling that blessing of be who you are, that it's really okay, that really who you are to inhabit and live from is freedom. And to start trusting that gives us all this aliveness. In fact, people sometimes when they begin, when the shift in identity happens and they begin to trust, okay, this oceanness, where they begin to sense this mystery that's here that's looking out and that's listening, there's um, this surge of energy that they didn't have access to prior um, one cartoon is God in the afterlife and this guy's talking to him about all the stuff he did and during his time on earth and God's saying, no, no, that's not a sin. No, no, not that either. Boy, you must have worried yourself to death, you know. <laughs> and, and it's interesting that the word worry, um, the Old English version is strangle, you know. And our worrying, am I okay, am I going to do it right, worrying about failure, it strangles our energy. Um, So this is the first kind of expression of of freedom, is there's a kind of an aliveness that we're free to enjoy. Some of you might, and and, and it's something that's, again, I talked about uh, original sin and... um, you know, that we're, we're so inclined to guilting and pushing down our energy. Some of you might remember this story that I, I like. It's of a, a new monk arrives in the monastery and is assigned to help the other monks in copying the old canons and laws of the church by hand. So he notices, however, all the monks are copying from copies, not the original uh, manuscript. So the new monk goes to the abbot and questions it and points to the fact if somebody made an error, it would just be continued on. It wouldn't be picked up. In fact, it would be in all the subsequent copies. So the abbot says, well, we've been copying from copies for centuries, but you make a good point, my son. So he goes down into the caves, you know, dark caves under the monastery where the original manuscript's been in this locked vault that hasn't been opened for hundreds of years. Hours go by. Nobody sees the old abbot. Eventually the young monk gets worried and goes downstairs to look for him and he sees him banging his head against the wall and crying uncontrollably. The young monk asks the old abbot, Father, Father, what's wrong? And in a choking voice the old abbot replies, The word is celebrate. So we spent a lot of hours in our fight, flight, worry, something's wrong, and it frees up a lot of energy. You start walking out there and you start feeling that soft breeze. And if your mind's not occupied and worried, when you feel that soft breeze, it's a caress. It's God kissing your cheek. It's something to celebrate. That's one, the first gift. The second is that when we start making love of this life perfect, this deep attentiveness, it frees us to embrace others. If we're really open to and tender towards this life, that tenderness spreads out. And often it begins with forgiving. If there's something really unforgiven within us, it's very hard to embrace others with all their conditioned stuff. So... um, 
story on that uh, that that I really love. I I shared uh, many years ago. I started sharing some of these readings from the uh, Vietnam Veterans Memorial Collection, and. And they're called Offerings at the Wall, and they were left by vets at at the Vietnam Memorial. And one of them reads like this. Dear sir, for 22 years I've carried your picture in my wallet. I was only 18 years old that day we faced each other on the trail in Chao Lai, Vietnam. Why you didn't take my life, I'll never know. You stared at me so long, armed with your AK-47, and yet you didn't fire. Forgive me for taking your life. I was reacting just the way I was trained, to kill V.C. So many times over the years I've stared at your picture and your daughter. I suspect each time my heart and guts would burn with the pain of guilt. I have two daughters of my own now. I perceive you as a brave soldier defending his homeland. Above all else, I can now respect the importance life held for you. I suppose that is why I'm able to be here today. It's time for me to continue the life process and release the pain and guilt. Forgive me, sir. So he wrote this letter. He left it in the memorial along with this photograph that he had of this man he had killed and his daughter. And then... Much more recently, I, I learned uh, the second part of the story, which is that when they made the book, somebody took the photo and took the letter and got it back to him. He had thought he'd kind of let go of it, but there it was back to him. So he decided that he needed to go and meet this man's daughter. So he went to Vietnam. And uh, his name's Richard Luttrell. And he had an interpreter, and he found the daughter and her brother. And here's what he said. He said, Tell her this is the photo I took from her father's wallet the day I shot and killed him, and that I'm returning it. And then with a cracking voice he asked her forgiveness. And then what happened was she burst into tears, fell into his arms, and they just stood there sobbing. Later, her brother explained. He said... Um, that having Richard come to them uh, that helped them to believe that their father's spirit lived on and lived on through him and through his heart. And he says, uh, people might expect that this is just superstition, but for us this is the day our father's spirit has come back to us. So I share that because you know, again, this Buddhism is an inside job. We are forgiving ourselves. We're, we're really making the love of the life right here perfect. But in so doing, there's nothing we do when we start loving this life that doesn't end up creating more love in this world. It's impossible. We're connected to the world. You know, it's that web of life telling us we belong. We do belong. And trusting that and, and offering love to our own hearts is the most direct way to embrace our life, all beings. That's part two. So there's the aliveness that's possible when we make love of our life perfect. And then there's that that love embraces life. The third part, the third gift, is that 
by loving ourselves, we realize who we are. In the moments that we give ourselves eternity and infinity, we discover we do not need them, we are beyond. Srinarsargadatta. The sense that something's wrong with me is the glue that holds together the self-sense. It's the glue. So the inquiry, who would you be if you didn't believe anything is wrong with you? Who would you be? And if we even get a glimmer of that, we're getting a glimmer of freedom. Who would you be if you didn't believe anything was wrong with you? It doesn't mean that you don't, that there's not conditioned waves that cause pain. It doesn't mean there's not jealousy and aggression, fear, addictiveness. It means that you realize the ocean, that you realize this loving presence that's your home. Rumi says, I've gotten free of that ignorant fist that was pinching and twisting my secret self. The universe and the light of the stars come through me. I am the crescent moon put up over the gate to the festival. So this is the third gift, that as we bring these two wings of attentiveness, this clear seeing and this tenderness, um, we become that presence that that's more the truth of what we are than any of the conditioned waves. So it's with that I'd like to just do a final reflection, if you will, just to invite you to close your eyes or keep them open if you meditate better that way. Just to begin by sensing what's happening right here. You might scan and sense if there's any story or feeling of something wrong. with whatever you're noticing, to explore what it means to you to make love of yourself perfect in these moments. It may be simply the intention and the offering of attention. It may be 
the gesture of a hand on the heart and the offering in some way of a message of care. And it may be energetically sensing a profoundly open, present, and loving awareness that's allowing this life to come and go naturally as it is. I've gotten free of that ignorant fist that was pinching and twisting my secret self. The universe and the light of the stars come through me. I am the crescent moon put up over the gate to the festival. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.